Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to, yeah, that's probably an ad. It's the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com, and with me as he is the tweak is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, welcome back to the show. Thank you, David. Also excited to welcome back Sammy Main, who has been on the show many times, but was recently promoted to our social editor, running all of our social accounts. Welcome back, Sammy, and congratulations. Hello, and thank you. I'm very plugged in all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I don't know if now is like the best moment in human history to be like on social media 24-7, but hey, nope. someone's some, someone's got to do it, and I'm glad it's you. Uh, also, really excited to welcome a new uh, writer at Adweek, Tim Carmody, a senior uh, reporter covering the technology beat. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to be at Adweek. And you are, uh, you're based in Detroit, right? I am, in, I am from and living in uh, just outside Detroit, Michigan. Nice. Yeah. So we've got, uh, people may not know this, but we're kind of all scattered all over. We've got Tim is in Maine. I'm in Alabama. Uh, Sammy's holding down the fort in our headquarters in Hell's Kitchen. And now we got Detroit represented. So fun uh, geographic range on the podcast. Love Hell's Kitchen. Used to live there when I was in New York. All right, guys. Well, let's get to it because we got a lot to talk about today. But first, I wanted to thank everyone who has posted a review for this show, whether on Apple Podcasts or wherever get your podcasts. Uh, it means a lot, and it's always a blast going through those reviews. We're really proud of the fact that we've been uh, averaging a five-star uh, review average uh, pretty much since we got going. Uh, but really, we just love seeing the feedback. We love hearing what you think of the show. So if you haven't already, if you don't mind sliding over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows and leave us a review. Let us know what you think. And, uh, you know, it means a lot to us. We love reading those. And also it helps new folks discover the podcast. So, again, thanks to everyone who has left some of that for us. And we are going to dive in to the news. All right. Facebook has announced a pretty major change, or so they say. I guess it'll take a little time for the implications to become clear. They are changing their news feed to focus on less public content like posts from businesses, brands, and media according to Mark Zuckerberg. And, uh, of course, people within the marketing and the media industries are freaking out. Sammy, congratulations again on becoming a social editor right before <laughs> Facebook announces it's going to pull the rug out from under all of us. Um, mm-hmm. you know, real, qu- real quick, I'll kind of walk through. Zuckerberg posted uh, personally about this on Facebook. He said, I'm changing the goal that I give our product teams from focusing on helping you find relevant content to helping you fi- have more meaningful social interactions. 
uh, and if, you know what they mean by meaningful is kind of a question. But he admits, you know, people are going to spend less time on Facebook after this shift, but the time they spend will be more meaningful. Uh, some of their execs have come out since this. Uh, of course, media people were freaking out because for many of us, Facebook is one of the largest, if not the largest, sources of traffic for our content for brands. It's obviously a super huge aspect of their social media policy, and they've kind of come out and clarified, you know, hey, listen, we're not saying that there's not going to be media and brand content. We're just saying that it, you know, it'll be about the content that you want to engage with people you care about. And maybe that will be news content. Maybe that will be brand content. It probably won't be brand content. (laughs) But, you know, um, you know, their point was just basically like we want Facebook to be a better experience. People are having a lot more anxiety because of things like news. Uh, And so, you know, I I guess I'll stop there before I share my own opinions. Uh, You know, Sammy, what is your take on this change, Uh, you know, both as a a social media professional and as a human being trying to live a normal life in uh, insane times? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll put on my social media hat for the first part. Um, I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense for Facebook. If they're not going to be a media company, they probably don't want to be a source of anxiety for people. They probably don't want to lose people in that process. Um, for me, I've been engaging more with like the dog spotting Facebook group and fan groups for podcasts that I like. So that's what the algorithm chooses to show me more often than not. So I don't mind checking Facebook because usually it's full of fun goofs and not all of the serious stuff. Um, but I, I think they've, they've, that's what they've been trying to do so far. And so I feel like with this, as long as publishers or, or brands kind of keep in mind, they shouldn't have been making content for Facebook in the first place because that's unsustainable. Um, as, as long as they keep trying to make, you know, relevant emotional content that people can have an opinion on or share in order to disagree with or share in order to show how smart they think they are. Like that's what motivates people to share more often than not. Or if it's a a piece of content that they identify with and can kind of relate to or want to send to one of their friends that they, they know kind of feels the same way. That's what drives people to share and engage. And a lot of the time they're posting and sharing regardless or without kind of links involved. So it it makes sense from a Facebook standpoint of why they would turn down that knob. Um, They've also done this before. They've been doing this for the past couple of years, sometimes in order to push, you know, a a different video product that they were trying to develop. They're no longer paying publishers to partake in their live video experiment. Um, so, So they're just kind of trying to make sure from what it sounds like, that people enjoy their time when they're on Facebook instead of stressing or seeing stuff that they don't need. So just make what people need and then you should be fine. Well, the people I feel kind of bad for are the publishers. Uh, and, you know, we this is something we think about a lot. And I, I used to be in Sammy's role as social editor at Adweek. And, and so it's, you know, it's certainly something where we spend a lot of time thinking about Facebook as a traffic source and what we can do to get more engagement from Facebook. But, you know, we never were one of those publishers that really worked with them on, hey, partner with us on doing more, you know, doing live video and partner with us on trying out these new, you know, experimental tools. And a lot of publications did. And I think they foresaw a lot of benefit to that. And many of them, and those I know personally, have felt kind of abandoned by Facebook, like it, because almost mm. none of those initiatives have really paid off in the long run, whether it's instant articles, which was like their, you know, right. kind of in, in Facebook uh, content 
or uh, you know, live video. And Zuckerberg's uh, statement even basically said, like, uh, man, there's a lot of video now. You know, a lot of people are just kind of saturated <laughs> by video. Weird. Like, yeah, Where'd that yeah, come from? He doesn't really like pay you. that close attention to what's happening at Facebook. I think is you know, every, oh, every once in a while he checks in and he's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Well, he's very busy shaking hands in <laughs> Iowa, so there's not a lot of time he spends on Facebook. I've always, uh, I've always felt like Facebook just. You know, I get that they need to adjust the algorithm, but they tend to slide that, you know, to press the sliders a little too far on some mm-hmm. of these changes. So they're like, let's go all in on video and let's like go out and pimp video hard. And then like, whoa, too much video. Let's slide this one way forward. And, you know, whatever. That's the media, you know, would be kind of dumb to have become too dependent on Facebook. I think we've seen our Facebook traffic. Nud, you may uh, know off the top of your head. I think it's down like 60% over the past uh, year. Last year it was, yeah. I mean, it's not like we didn't see this coming either. David, I don't remember exactly when you were a social editor. Was it like 2014 or so? Yeah, it was about, yeah, about three years ago. I mean, we were talking about this then. Like, we shouldn't be more, you know, overly reliant on Facebook for our traffic because if they change their algorithm, you know, it's all going to collapse. I mean, in some ways, I think this is going to help publishers, you know, um, like being too reliant on Facebook is absurd. And and let's let's be honest, too. Like, some of the content that we get of friends sharing links and stuff on Facebook, some of that can go. I mean, as we were talking, I logged on to Facebook and... A friend that I last saw in, I'm going to guess, 1987, uh, is shared a link. It's the top link in my newsfeed, and it's uh, a video of a woman. De- it says, woman devotes her life to caring for abused raccoon. And I'm not hey, going to miss I'm that. I'm very interested in it. <laughs> yeah, did you log into Sammy's account? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to miss that, honestly. Well, mm-hmm. it's got 10 million views. Look at that in the last wow. two days. I'm so behind. All right, looks I mean, cute. Hang on. I'll be right back. Okay. <laughs> I do think that this is going to benefit publications that have, you know, that people actually bookmark and they visit. And, you know, luckily we are one of those. Adweek is a site that we get a lot of what's called direct traffic, you know, people really coming directly to us. You know, I think for many of them, Facebook's just been a convenient way to see the stories that were doing pretty well. Uh, And now I think you'll just have more people browsing and coming back to your site the way it did 10 years ago. Uh, so in, in a sense, it's one of those kind of like if you, you know, if you make $10,000 and then lose $10,000, you're just kind of even, but it still sucks to have lost $10,000. I kind of feel the same way. It's like we had these huge glut of traffic uh, and now it's kind of going away. But, you know, for us, our traffic has actually grown quite a lot over the last year, which is wonderful. I mean, I don't know, honestly, how the rest of the publication industry is doing, but it's through things like Google, through search, through new, you know, news, these new softwares, um, and through uh, new apps that people are using and different platforms. It's basically like we're seeing a lot of growth in, in other places, email newsletters. So it's it's not, you know, if, if you've been paying attention to Tim's point, you know, if you've been paying attention to this for years, hopefully you're not just like getting the rug completely pulled out from under you. But I think if you're one of these like viral websites, like Little Things or whatever, would that kind of rely on the, you know, injured raccoon videos? You're probably going to have a hard time, but I could be wrong. Um, well, uh, Tim Carmody, what, what do you think of this? How has the response been in the tech community? Well, I think one of the things that Facebook is sort of figuring out, the same way Google figured out early on, is that the signals that they send about what kind of content they think is important and what kind of content they they think will do well on their platform, those get multiplied back by the people who make that content, whether it's brands or publishers or, or anybody else. So if a Facebook executive gets on a stage and thinks and says, you know, Facebook's going to be all video and video is just so much more engaging than text and, and we could see text dying out on the platform and Facebook being video only, 
amazingly enough, publishers and brands and other people are going to respond by giving Facebook lots and lots of video. So even if they've only tweaked the algorithm, you know, slightly, the the combination of the algorithm, the public statements, and everybody's reaction to it, because everybody wants their whatever it is they're producing to do well on Facebook. There's huge audiences there. There's, uh, you know, and it. it it, it, a particularly valuable audiences because people share with their friends and family and that has a certain trust level to it. So I think the, the thing is, is that I think they, they've sort of realized that by steering the ship sort of so abruptly from one kind of content to the other, um, those signals are, are getting, are, are, are getting, getting things back that they don't necessarily want or need. The trouble, however, is that at least those signals are clear, right? Because if you say more video, then we could say, oh, well, good, we'll, we'll produce more video and then, you know, and that'll get us more Facebook traffic. Saying things like, we don't want the, the Facebook content to cause people anxiety. We don't want it to be things that upset people. We don't want, we, we're looking for things that people engage with more organically. How do you produce things to that specification? Um, you could try lots of different things, and I'm sure publishers and uh, brands and everybody will try different things to to see what they can do to get that kind of response back. But um, but it, it's not as clear a signal as as saying things like "we like video." Maybe I'm too, you know, poisoned by our times, and you know, maybe I've got a bit of a black <laughs> mirror kind of view lens on the world. But like, you know. I just think there's a naivety to this. There's a naivety that comes out in a lot of Mark Zuckerberg's comments about you know yeah. Facebook interactions. It's almost like he's saying, you know, everyone's so angry all the time. Like people are just, <laughs> you know, they're 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 so angry. Let's let's uh, let's make them talk more to their family because nothing avoids arguments quite like spending a lot more time talking to your right. family. Right. You know, it's it's <laughs> just nothing ramps up anxiety like a like a good back and forth in the Facebook yeah, comments. Just, you know, it's yeah. just like a good th- Thanksgiving dinner. What what could <laughs> possibly go wrong like you know i just i feel like there's this kind of wholesome worldview that he maintains that we can somehow go back to this 50s idyllic time uh you know if if only they can just adjust enough knobs to get us there make uh, facebook great again yeah and so well. you know you know well, also this, I, a- I just, this axiom that more connectivity more interaction between people is necessarily going to result in a good outcome I mean, that's the, the entire premise of Facebook. He can't really back away from that. So he has yeah. to try to find some way to make whatever the new platform strategy conform to that premise that Facebook has for existing in the first place. Well, I feel like if anything, uh, if Instagram has taught us anything, it's that if you want to have like a decently positive view of the world, just take away all words. And just have like, <laughs> look, Sammy has a puppy. Oh, all right. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> all right. Well, keep tabs on adweek.com. We are going to be covering this quite a bit. And hey, if you've been affected by the changes or if you have concerns about it, how it's going to affect your clients or your job, drop us a note at podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. Uh, Super Bowl. Hey, did you guys know the Super Bowl is coming up? What? Soon. God, it's like every year. It feels like this time every year. Is that a television program or? Yeah. So it, it's, it, you know, it's transmedia. It really is right. omnimedia. <laughs> 
in its appeal. But, it, but mostly TV. Like, it's a big deal yeah. for television, right? So, so, yeah, and advertisers seem to care about it. So it's coming up February 4th, but for us, Super Bowl season and for the advertising world, Super Bowl season starts probably like the first week of December. Uh, and so uh, we are starting to hear about kind of the status of the ads. So we're going to see. We have a huge Super Bowl ad tracker that you should bookmark on adweek.com. Uh, it's very easy to find if you Google around. Uh, and we are just already posting a flurry of articles about uh, you know about this year's ads. But uh, a few things I wanted to talk about this week. One is uh, they're they're charging more than five million dollars. We we don't have a specific amount per thirty seconds. Uh, but NBC says it's going to be more than five million, which yeah, it's about about where it's been the last few years. They kind of keep creeping it up a little bit more, uh, but over five million. They seem to be selling like hotcakes. They uh, I think they as of last Thursday, so probably several days before you listen to this, they were at uh, our last update had them at they had ten ad slots left out of about seventy. Um, but so you know, not too many left. In previous years, they've held on to a few until the last minute just to squeeze extra money out of folks. Um, but uh, I, I have a feeling this year they'll just kind of take what they can get. There's been some interesting, um, you know, revelations so far. I think there some people worried that there would be advertiser pushback on whether the anthem protests would be covered. Uh, they kind of didn't want to see that in the broadcast, but in the, according to NBC, the actual advertisers don't care there because they said, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna show it if people kneel. We're gonna show it during the game." And supposedly the current advertiser pool has not had a problem with that. Uh, we got a little bit of news out of Pepsi. They're bringing back Cindy Crawford, who had one of the most iconic Pepsi ads ever. She is going to be reviving it 26 years later. Now, she's uh, she's revived it before, uh, not too long ago, right, Tim? Uh, Nud? You know, I think so. I, I have a hard time remember. I think she recreated it um, on the Late Late Show uh, yeah. last year or a year before with James Corden, like yeah, after exactly. the show. Yeah. So yeah, yeah so it wasn't for real. It was a parody. I mean, but yeah. yeah, it was a parody, and I mean, this is a big part of you know. She still says that people you know recognize her for that. I mean, it's probably the most famous thing she's ever done. Uh, the, the 1992 um, Super Bowl ad. So she's going to be, I think, recreating that with a 30 second spot. Um, yeah, with her son is, is going to be in it too. Her son Presley. Um, it's it's kicking off a whole global year long campaign called Pepsi Generations. Uh, that are also going to feature uh, uh, Pepsi icons from the past. So I don't know. You could say maybe Pepsi's out of ideas. Maybe maybe the Kendall Jenner thing. Just you know, last year the big fiasco uh, with the with the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, maybe that scared Pepsi, and they said, "Well, we can only we're going to go back to an idea from 26 years ago because it's we can't go wrong there." Um, but you know, obviously, uh, the Super Bowl is about kind of being over the top, and 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 this will be probably one of the most commented on spots i imagine during the game uh nut have you seen any other kind of trends emerging i feel like we're still pretty early in seeing any actual content about what's going to be in there not i think it is a little bit early you know we've been hearing that uh maybe there'll be a return to humor this year you know humor in the last five years has kind of gone down i don't know if you would if you'd blame chrysler for that you know about five or six years ago they started a series of more somber, thoughtful, you know, the Clint Eastwood ad, the, the M&M spot, like they did all these ads that broke through because they were a bit more serious and a bit less silly uh, than the, than your typical Super Bowl ad. 
Uh, maybe we're heading back to silly because everyone's so exhausted by Mr. Trump and everything else going on in America. Um, we'll, we'll have to see. I think it's a little early to, to say yet, um, but we'll keep an eye on that for sure. I remember last year, we, we I, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody. I kind of thought advertisers would avoid politics just because Trump was so new into office. And I thought they would take this approach of like, well, let's not, you know, the election's over. Let's just kind of let things settle down. They did not. You know, we had a ton of political ads last year, uh, like political mm-hmm. themed ads. For sure. Uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think we'll probably still see some of that. But generally, uh, people will probably just be like, hey, much like Zuckerberg, let's see what we can do to ratchet down the anxiety uh, by mm-hmm. going back three decades and reviving old ad cliches. So <laughs> we shall see. All right. Yep. Well, that's it for this week's news. Uh, it's time to talk about the week's best ad. All right, Tim. This week, there's only ad, one ad worth talking about. Yeah, um, guys, I think <laughs> I think you expected clear. this. Um, this is not going to be this week. We're, instead of ads worth watching, we're going to be doing ads worth peeing on. Sure, uh, it's my my dog's uh, favorite category. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure our readers, our listeners, have have heard about this uh, already. It's the IKEA ad from their Swedish agency, Okristam Holst. Uh, by the way, uh, Adweek's International Agency of the Year for 2017. Um, they made IKEA's first viral ad of 2018. And, you know, IKEA makes a lot of viral ads, but this one is um, a wee bit different. Mm-hmm. Uh. Sorry, I, I, prom- I promise I won't, I won't continue. Um, so you're, anyway, okay. you're in trouble if you keep up with the puns. <laughs> with the P-U-Ns. Um, so Okerstam Holst created a print ad for a women's magazine in Sweden and, um, right on the headline, it says, if you pee on this ad, it could change your life. And so, um, (laughs) women are encouraged to pee on the ad and it kind of works like a pregnancy test. Um, but instead of a little plus sign or, or a line appearing as on your normal pregnancy test, um, if if a woman who pees on the Ikea ad is pregnant, um, a discounted price on a crib kind of magically appears, um, below the non-discounted price. So... Um, I should clarify this, this actually kind of confused some people. This, the ad is not a coupon. Uh, you don't have to bring in an ad that you feed on <laughs> to your local Ikea. Literally, as someone who's been monitoring our social media this week, our flood of mentions the entire week has been gross. I feel so bad for the cashiers who have to touch pee <laughs> like 24 seven is all our mentions have been. I saw some really weird tweets. I saw several tweets saying, why does Ikea want you to pee on your phone? <laughs> what? <laughs> Just because you're reading this on your phone doesn't oh, mean you need to pee God. on your phone. Please don't pee um, on ad- Don't pee on adweek.com. <laughs> I'm exhausted. So, it, so it's not a coupon. It's an offer. And it's also not an offer that's only available to pregnant women. The, the discounted price is actually the IKEA family member price. Uh, anyone can belong to the IKEA family program. Uh, it costs money to belong to it. Um, so the ad really is just meant to encourage women who are about to expand their family, uh, trying to get them to enroll in the program and get those discounts uh, while also giving them this handy kind of free pregnancy test in the process. So I had um, images of a shadow economy of pregnant women peeing on ads for people who wanted to get the discounts but weren't going to have a baby. <laughs> so that's reassuring. You don't have to... You don't have to pip yourself out. You know, this is one of those stories, too, where I, I wasn't sure how popular it was going to be. Because normally stories that are kind of gross don't really go like go viral, you know? Because people are reluctant to share that stuff, going back to Zuckerberg. Uh, but I think I think why this became popular is because it's, it's 
at first you think, wow, that's kind of gross, but then, and may, and also kind of weird, but then as you read about it, you're like, oh, that's kind of clever. So it's got this kind of one-two punch that um, kind of helped it get tons and tons of attention this week. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they're, it's not a gross uh, ad in the way that we've seen things that are like, this is made of poo, or this features a bunch of turds doing stuff. Like, you know what I mean? It, it's not. <laughs> right. in, it's not innately gross. It's just the concept. Right. But but the shorthand headline is this is an ad that you pee on. Yeah. 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 So the, so the the, the clickbaity thing that gets passed around is, hey, did you hear IKEA made an ad that you're supposed to pee on? And then you know you don't really pee on it. You just it's like a pregnancy test. As as the agency told us, you know, it's no more gross than a pregnancy test, really. <laughs> I think I think it's because it's babies that it works. Like anything, even baby pee, you know, it it, it somehow just washes everything clean. Nothing's gross when it comes to babies. Yeah, and and you know, a lot of people, of course, made jokes about like, or I don't know, maybe they weren't joking, but you know, that you could uh, create an ad that people poop on to find out if they have colorectal cancer. I mean, there, there's actually been uh, campaigns that we've covered over the years that are vaguely in that space, you know, in the sense of not like poop on this ad, but you know, send this in, we'll send you a thing you poop in, and and you know, it's just like it it it's weird. It comes up, but man, this one just Tim's right, just hit the zeitgeist in a way. I think it, and and these days anything you can do that gets people fired up about an ad one way or the other with but but the important thing is that they don't think that's stupid. Like they think it's incredibly clever, just kind of bizarre. I think it hit us at a time where we were still waking up from like winter holiday hibernation. So we're like yawning, rubbing our eyes. What? <laughs> you have to pee on this? And it just kind of surprised, delighted, shocked, disgusted people when we were not expecting it. So I, 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 I love the image of the Sammy right just like coming out of her hibernation cave and there's just a Swede <laughs> standing there holding this <laughs> idea like, we would like you to pee on this. Thank you. Yeah, no, thanks. <laughs> no. Um, all right, <sighs> Tim, thank you as always for rounding up the uh, best ad of the week. And now it's all time right. to move on to our big discussion of the week. All right, this week we're talking influencers, video influencers, the good, the bad, the lately quite bad about uh, <laughs> the relationship that they have with uh, brands and with advertisers. Let's just cut to the chase. Uh, we're largely talking about Logan Paul. This is one of those stories that just hasn't died over the last few weeks. I think last week on the podcast, we were even like, eh, the story's dying off. Let's not really talk about it. And then it's just, it just keeps coming. Uh, you know, there's just more updates. Uh, you know, Logan Paul, for those who've been under a rock or God, God bless you if you have been, uh, you know, he's just one of these uh, kind of new YouTube stars, makes a lot of video, very popular uh, with you know younger viewers. Uh, it gets a millions and millions of views. He went to Japan, recorded a video in a park known as the Suicide Forest and found a gentleman who had killed himself and filmed it uh, and then filmed his reaction and posted it. He did not monetize it, but he did, uh, you know, he did happily take the millions of views. And uh, I think he thought he was trying to do it in some quasi somber way. Um, But then a lot, you know, a lot of factors really kind of kicked that out from under him uh, and really showed that this was just just a bad decision from from the word go. Uh, I don't know what he was really expecting going into this forest. I have a feeling he was kind of hoping for a situation like this. Uh, But anyway, so he apologized. Uh, but then some people point out, yeah, well, like his other videos from Japan are kind of racist too, like of him running around making jokes about race, uh, about uh, Japanese culture, making fun of it, dressing up and making fun of their English. I mean, just like 80s level bad humor. Uh, 
Um, and, you know, so he has paid several prizes for this, uh, namely in losing his status uh, that Tim Carmody, you wrote about this the other day, uh, that he has lost his uh, involvement in the uh, Google's ad preferred platform or preferred ad platform. This is the same fate that happened to uh, PewDiePie when he went through this a year ago after making some jokes about the Holocaust. What does that mean? How good is this uh, preferred ad platform? Well, supposedly you make more money. Um, and that's really what they what they did was they cut off their kind of more direct business ties to Logan Paul. So they also canceled some of his uh, YouTube Originals program, which are shows that are shown on YouTube Red. And they kicked him off of uh, Foursome, I think it's called, which is you know one of these other Google Original programs that he's involved with, I think with his brother or some other people or something. So the, the sort of official endorsement of YouTube has been withdrawn from Logan Paul. Um, and it's going to cost him some money. It's going to cost him some advertisers. Uh, he was issued a strike uh, as far as for violating the community standards on YouTube, and usually it's, you know, as so often is, it's three strikes and you're out. Um, but he was not, his channel was not deleted, he was not suspended. He can still go ahead and make videos and monetize them. Um, and probably given the size of his channel, he'll continue to be one of the more popular uh figures on YouTube. He just won't have that that sort of imprimatur from YouTube as being part of that top 5%, which is what they advertise the the scope of the preferred program as being and as being a, a, a particularly good place for brands to advertise with. Now, as I mentioned, the same uh, thing happened with PewDiePie, who was the number one uh, YouTube celebrity, number one most subscribed uh, video game po- uh, you know, vlogger. And he made some jokes about the Holocaust almost exactly a year ago. It was February of 2017. Uh, they removed him from the program. Uh, he apologized. The advertisers kind of expressed a lot of outrage. There was much clutching of pearls you know, about whether this is the right kind of content for advertisers to be around. And that came about during a bigger conversation around brand safety. Uh, you know, when people were worried about being next to terrorist videos and offensive and racist videos and white supremacy videos. And so, you know, a lot of that was kind of the context around this. I feel like because some of that has died off a bit, the Logan Paul conversation has been much more about influencers and less about, you know, race or religion or, you know, this kind of generally unsafe content. Sammy, a question for you. You were previously our digital media reporter. You largely covered influencers. You were kind of our go-to person for covering these folks. You know a lot of them. Uh, you know, are PewDiePie and Logan Paul, even despite being two of the biggest stars, are they representative of the video influencers as a whole? Or do you think they are these kind of outliers who make the rest of them look bad? Well, uh, yes and no. <laughs> like part of me, uh, part of me wants to say that um, this is maybe an entitled white man problem to where they think they can get away with anything after they reach a certain level of popularity and that they're untouchable. And then they become slightly touchable. Like they're not getting punished on the level that, I don't know, an employee of a workplace, like if you were working for someone else and made these kinds of videos, I can't imagine you would still have a career, let alone a job. Um, So I think they're benefiting from that part of kind of influencer culture of, you know, they have fans, they messed up, they pretend to apologize, and then most of their people will forget about it within a a couple weeks. Um, There's still a larger conversation to be had about YouTube culture 
Um, I would point to some reporting by BuzzFeed in the last couple of months of kind of extremely sensitive and controversial kind of child-related content that's also being passed around YouTube and is extremely disturbing outright. So I feel like brands should be aware of the risk that comes with advertising on YouTube unless they are um, kind of working directly with with either creators or, or influencers on there. Um, you honestly don't know what's going to show up and it doesn't seem like YouTube is doing anything to actually stop these accounts from posting. It's just a kind of gentle slap on the wrist of, oh, you won't get the best ads, but you can still be on the platform. And so I don't think we're doing anything to solve our culture or society's problem of kind of our gross fixation on things. We're, we're just kind of putting a Band-Aid on it and, you know, solving it for now. But there's there's a much larger scope to this that no one has quite um, grasped. And, and I feel like there's maybe not a reckoning, but maybe a time where we'll kind of look back on this period of YouTube and just kind of wonder, like, how did it get so bad? <laughs> how did it get so terrible that the worst parts of humanity were on here and we kind of did nothing to, to monitor that? Yeah. You know, one thing I think about a lot is that when YouTube goes in front of advertisers, you know, the talent that they choose to pull out are these very kind of safe stars, right? Like they're the ones that you would take home to mom. They're, you know, they're just really kind of not necessarily like overly wholesome, but, you know, they're generally the ones. But that's a small slice in the big scheme of things of the total volume of what, you know, the content that's going out there. And the reason that a lot of these people are super popular is because they say things that's pretty gross and pretty, you know, to to me and to a lot of people, offensive and disturbing and just kind of, but that's why people love them. You know, Logan Paul faked his own death in front of his fans because he thought it was funny. You know, it's just, and there were probably a lot of people who thought it was, uh, you know, so it's just one of those things that I think there's a certain amount of denial about the nature of a lot of this content and that YouTube, you know, kind of shines a light very selectively, uh, you know, on who they want to really highlight. I, I think there's also the, because one thing you're hearing a lot this week and uh, a year ago with PewDiePie is his, their, you know, their viewers like this stuff. Like there's a, they're not surprised by these things. You know, now I do think that Logan Paul got a bit more backlash. He's, you know, he's kind of this kind of cute guy that I think he has this like appeal to guys. He has an appeal to women, you know, so he does have a, a bit more of a mixed audience than someone like PewDiePie. But, um, you know, I, so there certainly was backlash, but he has not lost subscribers because of this. You know, he is, he is up tens of thousands of subscribers since all this happened. PewDiePie is up 7 million subscribers since we wrote about this a year ago. <laughs> yeah, so these guys don't pay a price with viewers. They, they really just pay a price with brands. I mean, is, is that a fair assessment? I mean, yeah, I feel like they don't even care about paying the price with brands. I feel like they're going to say, you know, they're being unique or authentic or just experimenting or trying something. And we always praise both brands and influencers for kind of showing the real sides of them, you know, and like taking us along their day. And like, we feel like there are friends who <laughs> kind of live in our screens. Um, like I grew up watching a few different vloggers and I feel like there's a voyeuristic tendency to what we like to watch on YouTube. I think, you know, it's, it's, if, feels not like what it used to. It's kind of like, if I can <laughs> use the weirdest metaphor, it's like when Neopets was bought by Viacom, if anybody out there in the world can relate 
<laughs> you're I, my I'm people. I'm curious to see where you're going. Okay. Great. Yes. So it was like just a cool time for a while. You get to, you know, build your pets, make your friends. Some of my oldest internet friends I met on Neopets chat boards. Everything's fine. I'm very normal and well-adjusted. Um, but there came a time where it was kind of acquired and it started being monetized and more banner ads were there. And like you had to pay real life money in order to get certain things. And like the appeal was just lost. Like it kind of grew up and was not the same era that it that it used to be. And I feel like now we're in an era of YouTube less so focusing on like enjoying the real lives of people and kind of obsessed with the gross parts of their real lives. And like they, they've been pressed into playing these characters that we watch instead of relate to. And it's different and I don't like it. And that's my story. <laughs> I think that's the biggest tension is like when you say authenticity, you know, brands are, have been so drawn to authenticity, you know, ever since the fragmenting of media and you can't keep people hostage, you know, with your messaging anymore, they've been drawn to these authentic people. Like influencers are just that they, they're drawn to the authenticity and the numbers that that brings. But, but when you're too authentic, you know, when you reveal your, your true nature or your ugly side, like that's, that yeah. brands are like, no, I don't want that. I don't want it to be too feel- real. I feel like ugly is a better word than authentic here because, I mean, what what is really authentic about Logan Paul in Japan going to the suicide forest hoping to see a dead body? I mean, it, it feels, I guess, honest about what his values are and what his interests are. But at the same time, that's not necessarily something that's authentic about a real person's life. That's very much, this is what it's like to be a young ridiculously successful, ridiculously entitled YouTube celebrity who's going out and and having laughs at other people's expense. And I think, you know, again, the, the sort of YouTube preferred program is they bill it sort of as the top 5%, but also as a specifically as a way to reach people between 18 and 34. And and really, when you say 18 and 34, you're also talking about kind of 13 to 25 as well. And I think there's just this, you know, go back to the Neopets example, there's just this mystery around the youth market. What, you know, what are the, what do the teenagers want? And, and what is kind of being thrown at them, what seems to be the formula for what's successful are kind of can, you know, blonde, quote unquote, conventionally attractive people saying shocking, outrageous things uh, that can get get people's attention and capture it and sort of feed that back to lay a little advertising on them. And I feel like, or what I hope is that incidents like this reveal the limits of that formula, so to speak. So you, you can't just take a blonde kid, throw him in Japan and expect it that it's all going to be positive returns that you're going to get uh that only good things are going to come from him trying to be as outrageous as shocking as surprising as possible and that you know both but i mean audiences seem to be following it but at the same time that's not necessarily anything that you that you want to have your your brand associated with yeah, I, I guess one thing I keep grappling with is because I try not to be hypocritical about these things is, is something that's offensive to me, you know, is one thing, but something that I enjoy may be offensive to other people. So, like, I play a lot of video games and there are people who are like, how can you play something so violent and, you know, and that imbr- that's so you know, obsessed with gore or violence or whatever about video game culture? And then, you know, I would say, well, do you watch Game of Thrones? Do you watch Westworld? You know, it's like there it's just there are people who 
can't understand why someone's into something that they find offensive, and then they turn around and they watch shows that are, you know, filled with blood and sexual assault and horrific things. You know, they watch CSI or Criminal Minds or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like, so I try not to, I try to give, you know, fans of all ages kind of the benefit of the doubt. It's like, hey, it's not my thing. I think the difference between a lot of those examples is you don't have ads on HBO. You know, the, the, you're you're asking people to pay money to, to, to you know, choose it, and it's their dollar. Uh, for brands, it's like they're they're in this tough situation of, you know, is this where I really want to put my money? Um, I, I guess, you know, kind of wrapping up, Sammy, what, what do you think is going to happen? And, you know, with the influencers and their relationship with brands, is it going to be, is this going to cast a shadow over those relationships for the next year or so? I mean, my hope is that kind of the the best people will kind of rise to the top for their quality of inoffensive content as opposed to the most popular people rising to the top for their most offensive, most watched content. Um, So if brands are smart, they're kind of, I hope they just start to pay attention as to where their ads are showing up. (laughs) We won't have to keep having this problem. If we, if we kind of have ways to, to keep track of that, then they should either work directly with people or back out of it entirely. Also, this whole conversation has just made me hate YouTube. It's a cesspool, and I wish none of us were ever on it. So this isn't the point. Uh, I think, um, I mean, I don't think these white boys will be affected at all. I think some brands will still want to partner with them because they are attracted to the the numbers of people who watch them. Um, but I, I just hope the brands in general kind of take this more seriously and realize who they're supporting and what their name is standing next to. And maybe that means they kind of take stock and pay attention more. You know, I, I think one thing we're going to see more of in the next uh, year is, you know, this, I guess, kind of the Howard Stern model of where if you're controversial and maybe too controversial for advertisers, that you really start shifting as fast as you can to this kind of Patreon or, you know, to, to some where where people are really having to go out of their way to support you. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. we wrote about a podcast recently that I, I would say is very sexist. And, uh, you know, it's very much this kind of bros talking about chicks. Like, it was awful to me. But, like, it has hundreds and hundreds of five-star reviews. The audience that mm-hmm. seemed to love it. It has no advertisers. It's 100% supported by Patreon. And part of me is just like, well, I think this thing is disgusting. But, you know, it's your money. Like, if you're really into the listening to dudes right. talk about cucks yeah. or whatever it is they're into, like, all right, I guess it's your thing. Um, People are going to seek out and listen and support what they want to. Yeah, I think it's just it's unfair maybe. I don't I don't use the word unfair very often with the ad industry, but I do think it's kind of unfair to expect brands to, you know, just kind of openly support any kind of content when, you know, that, you know, in a world where that's not the only way to monetize this stuff. You know, there's plenty of other options. But I have a feeling we're going to be talking about this quite a bit more. So I'm, I'm glad we uh, kind of got started on this conversation. Um, <laughs> we're going to we're going to be talking about hopefully not necessarily talking as much about Logan Paul in the near future. But I, 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 I think just to add one thing, I think it's bigger than Logan Paul. I mean, YouTube got pre- got pushed into a situation where they had to make a promise that they would never have a video that was like Logan Paul's video on its platform again. And the, the steps that they took against Logan Paul don't really address that problem. So there has to be something in terms of either content moderation, whether it's humans, whether it's AI, that deal with this issue of the fact that you had a dead body being presented, not in any kind of instructional or any kind of contextual way. And, and it was 
it was on the platform. People were, you know, were filing complaints against it. A human moderator at least approved it. It had to get kicked into another level. And ultimately, it wasn't YouTube that pulled it. It was Logan Paul himself who pulled it from the platform. I think that level, that sort of platform level of it, there's still more to come. And whether or not it's just going to be more layers of the same or or something that's a, a, a little bit stricter in terms of dealing with violent images on YouTube, that is, that's the, the other shoe that's still left to drop that doesn't really have anything to do with Logan Paul. It has to do with YouTube and its overall content standards and how they monitor them. So that's that's what's coming. Yeah, and it kind of gets back to the Facebook conversation is like this. Oftentimes there is a considerable gap between the way these executives view their company and the way that their users you know, view mm-hmm. the, the, the company. I think if you ask some YouTube executive, they would say, oh, it's just, it's a wonderful global resource that lets children sure. talk to children on the other side of the planet. It's like, yeah, yeah, that is, that is in there. <laughs> but, and, and I think also too, just as we saw with Adpocalypse, you know, there's, there's a slew of false positives that you could get, you could get people dealing with violent images in a responsible way. And suddenly if YouTube, you know, sort of cranks up its guidelines to be really strict in terms of cracking down on those, you could get, you know, more and more people either being demonetized or getting community standard strikes. So it's a really tricky thing. YouTube just has a very, very fine line that it has to walk here in terms of trying to, to, to monitor the content on the platform altogether. Well, we are out of time this week, but thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Sammy. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget, you can drop us a note at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Thank you, Christina. Uh, and again, if you haven't, take a moment to leave us a review. We love seeing those on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm David Griner with Adweek, and we will be back next week. 